Hello, and welcome to Common Law, a podcast from the University of Virginia School of Law. I'm Risa Golubuff, the dean. And I'm Leslie Kendrick, the vice dean. What better topic to bring us back from our winter break than a lawsuit that had it all? Media, politics, civil rights, and libel. It started in 1960. The New York Times published a paid advertisement entitled Heed Their Rising Voices. This is UVA law professor Frederick Schauer discussing the dispute that led to the landmark United States Supreme Court case, New York Times versus Sullivan. It was an ad basically objecting to the way that Martin Luther King and others had been treated uh, in the late 1950s South, in particular in Alabama. Uh, the advertisement talked about police abuse. You know, my friends, I come to time when people get tired of being trampled over by the iron feet of oppression. It talked about various things that the police had done to Dr. King and some number of others in Montgomery, Alabama. And it turned out that uh, Commissioner Sullivan, who was in charge of the police, possibly took umbrage at what the ad said. So Sullivan sues the New York Times for $500,000. Back then, Commissioner L.B. Sullivan argued in an Alabama state court that the Times ad was libelous because it had factual errors and damaged his reputation, the key elements in a libel claim. After deliberating for just two hours, the jury decided the Times was liable for libel and awarded Sullivan half a million dollars. But Shower says this particular case was not your garden variety libel dispute, and Sullivan's defamation claims were tenuous at best. For one, Sullivan had not even been named in the advertisement, and the factual errors it contained were fairly trivial. But in the Deep South, at the height of resistance to desegregation, it was clear the lawsuit had an ulterior motive, targeting civil rights protesters and allies of the movement. The real goal here was to punish the New York Times not for publishing this ad, but basically for representing, let us say, northern Yankee agitators who were interfering or criticizing the South. And just at the beginning of that part of the civil rights era that was characterized by marches, protests, demonstrations, picketing, and the like. And that, Shower says, worried the justices who had only recently struck down school segregation in Brown versus Board of Education. We don't exactly know why the Supreme Court took the case, but we have a pretty strong suspicion that they took the case largely as a way of protecting the civil rights movement, more than out of an overriding concern for free speech. But because libel law was a matter of state law, the only way that there could be a federal constitutional hook was indirectly through the claim that this was a violation of the First Amendment. If it had been any other kind of libel case, it's very unlikely that the Supreme Court, at least at the time, would have taken it. So, spoiler alert, the New York Times ultimately won this case. And while that outcome aided the fight for racial equality in the 1960s, it also had far-reaching and unexpected consequences for libel law that we're still living with today. 
That's right, Leslie. And as you might have guessed, considering how this season of Common Law is all about the power of law and lawyers to change history, we're going to talk about some of those consequences and ask whether they're entirely a good thing. So let's get back now to our interview with Fred Schauer. We asked him to explain how the Supreme Court justified hearing the case at all and why it reached the decision it did, given that before all this, the court had over and over again ruled that libel was not a First Amendment issue. So uh, part of the arguments that the court ultimately accepts is that uh, this looks like the common law crime of seditious libel. That is, it looks like the common law crime uh, of criticizing the government, trying to undercut the government and the like. This is, for all practical purposes, not an ordinary libel suit. This is the equivalent of the state bringing an action against the newspaper, even though it's technically civil and not criminal, looks like seditious libel, looks like a bunch of other things that the court had done um, in the First Amendment area, at least from the 1930s up until 1964. So it looks like some form of, of censorship and some form of punishment of criticism of the government yes, that, exactly. that directly implicates First Amendment yes. principles. So what happened when the case reached the Supreme Court? So the Supreme Court um, goes through, uh, as is common, uh, they go through eight different drafts of an opinion. Justice Brennan writes, ultimately writes an opinion for the court. Uh, what turns out to be the court's opinion is his eighth draft. Um, some justices wanted absolute immunity. Some justices wanted uh, merely minor shifts in the common law. Ultimately, what they agreed on is a dramatic constitutionalization of the common law of libel. The opinion decides that when public officials sue for libel, it is necessary for them, for the public official, to prove by clear and convincing evidence that what was said about the official was false and much more significantly, it calls it actual malice, was known to be false by the publisher at the time it was published. The court also says maybe there can be liability in cases of what it calls reckless disregard, but it made clear just a couple of years after that that even reckless disregard required actual knowledge of possible falsity and refusal to go ahead in the face of that. So the short answer is, after this case, public officials can bring libel suits only if they can prove by clear and convincing evidence that this was knowing falsity. So it's a almost, huge sea change. Uh, it's a huge sea change. Um, as a practical matter, it is almost impossible to prove that. Uh, you have to show that some, not, not just that it was negligent, not just that it was grossly negligent in common law sense of grossly negligent, but somebody knew something was false or knew something was probably false and published anyway. It turns out it's not only a sea change in the doctrine, it's a sea change in the relationship between libel law and political debate and political campaigns. With very few exceptions, New York Times versus Sullivan, at least from 1970, once all the kinks had been worked out, from 1970 until now, with very few exceptions, has essentially eliminated the libel suit as a 
weapon or a component of political campaigns and political debates and political arguments. That is dramatically different from what we see even in industrialized, liberal, open democracies uh, in the rest of the common law world. In Australia, in New Zealand, in Canada, in the United Kingdom, political figures are commonly suing newspapers. They are commonly suing each other. New York Times has essentially ended that in the United States. So would you say that uh, that the court swung too far in that direction and that if it was uh, initially too easy uh, to win a libel suit, it the court made it too hard now? So before we get to what I think, yeah. which matters less. <laughs> I think it matters a lot. <laughs> it turns out that Australia, New Zealand, Canada, the United Kingdom and every other country in the common law world and most uh of the countries in the civil law world thought it had swung too far. Journalists talk to each other, and therefore uh, journalists throughout the world know about this opinion. They have urged their local Supreme Courts, or the equivalent, to adopt a rule similar to the New York Times versus Sullivan actual malice rule, and every court that has considered the issue has said, no, that goes too far. They've changed a little bit. The common law in the countries I've just mentioned um, has changed a little bit. Now it's necessary to show negligence or in some other way departure from journalistic standards. But to uh, require that a plaintiff in a case like this show actual intentional falsity, people in other countries think is too far. So before we get to your own views, wh what's their reasoning? Why do they think it's too far? What are the values on the other side that they want to protect? One of them, um, so the New York Times versus Sullivan is the birth in the U.S. of what's commonly called the chilling effect. That is, New York Times versus Sullivan is based on the idea that if newspaper publishers are afraid of liability, they will be overly cautious, hyper-cautious, refrain from publishing things that are in fact true. That's the chilling effect. In many other countries, they've recognized the chilling effect, but they've recognized the exact opposite chilling effect. That is, they have said, if it is impossible for public officials to have any redress for blatantly false things said about them, people are not going to go into public life. Uh, this will chill public-spirited citizens from going into public life, running for public office, or at least that's what lots of common law countries think. So one thing about this, and you've written a really important article about the chilling effect and many other things that touch on the chilling effect. It's one thing to see that there's a chilling effect, or at least there's the potential for chilling. And of course, it's really hard to measure a chilling effect because you can't see the speech that's not being produced. Right. But it's another thing to figure out what the precise remedy is. And so the court thinks that there is a chilling effect, and it introduces the actual malice standard as the remedy for that. And a lot of other countries would say it's not obvious that that was the right remedy. Even if there is chilling, there are all these other concerns, and you'd have to take all those concerns into account. And they seem to think... Uh, the common law scalpel way of doing that is better than the kind of U.S. Supreme Court blowtorch way of dealing with the whole problem. Right. I think that's right. Uh, and uh, for example, uh, there are countries that say maybe there should be mandated retractions. 
impermissible under American constitutional law. Um, maybe there should be uh, the opportunity for someone who is libeled uh, to have equal print space to respond. Um, Florida tried something to that effect um, 15 years after New York Times versus Sullivan. The Supreme Court struck it down. So there are potential remedies other than eliminating libel actions for all practical purposes that other countries uh, have used, none of which would fly in the U.S. It's also worth mentioning at this point that uh, one of the important effects of New York Times versus Sullivan came three years later when the court said, recognizing that labor leaders, religious leaders, corporate leaders, and so on also have an effect on public affairs. The court said, again, possibly too broadly, possibly too heavy-handedly, all of the New York Times versus Sullivan principles apply to public figures as well as public officials. The court did not and has never said that there is a difference between the public figure who is involved with matters of public or political or policy importance and any other public figure. So it turns out that the same legal regime that applies to Commissioner Sullivan, presidents, senators, governors, and so on, um, also applies to Tom Brady, Miley Cyrus, Paris Hilton, uh, and various other celebrities who have little if no connection with public affairs or public matters. So would you change that? Would you recreate a distinction between public officials and public figures? I would, I would change that. Uh, interestingly, um, the most important book about New York Times versus Sullivan was written by the late New York Times columnist, Tony Lewis. He would have changed it as well, uh, despite being uh, in general enthusiastic about a, a broad and strong First Amendment. He would have changed that. And when the court finally addressed the issue in Curtis Publishing versus Butts, Justice Harlan would have changed that as well. Uh, one can understand the idea of the chilling effect. One can understand some of the issues involved, but still say, well, maybe public figures who have no connection with public policy at all and whose entire profession is tied up in their reputation, maybe they should be slightly more able to bring a lawsuit uh, than public officials uh, and various others who occupy those kinds of positions. Uh, perhaps more significantly, recently in the wake of concerns about fake news, in the wake of concerns about the way in which falsity can spread so rapidly in, in an era of the internet, in an era of social media, media, and so on, a number of people otherwise sympathetic with the First Amendment, otherwise sympathetic um, with the press, uh, have now begun to suggest that, yes, maybe New York Times has gone too far, uh, even with respect to public officials. Uh, and we have to ask ourselves the question now, um, what's the real problem? Is the real problem excess chilling of the newspapers or is the real problem excess proliferation of falsity? Ten years ago, a lot of people, including me, would have said the real problem is excess chilling of the newspapers. 
10 years later, I'm not sure. And I think a lot of other otherwise uh, free speech, First Amendment, press sympathetic people uh, are so worried about the rampant proliferation of flat out factual falsity, not just reasonable differences of opinion uh, about political programs, but flat out demonstrable uh, factual falsity um, that the suggestion is increasingly being made that some variety of negligence standard rather than the strict intentionality of New York Times versus Sullivan might now be appropriate. At the same time that that's happening, though, you have President Trump, who on the campaign trail and sense has said he wants to open up libel law, as he puts it, uh, to make it easier for people like himself to sue outlets like the New York Times. Um, And we have uh, Justice Thomas, who wrote a separate opinion recently suggesting that maybe New York Times should be uh, reexamined. So the, the political valence of this is complex, and there there are people who might otherwise agree about very little who kind of overlap in their interest in rethinking New York Times. Um, but I think from a journalist perspective, uh, there, there may be more concern than ever, and they would point to uh, Trump statements or Thomas to say, this is precisely the wrong time to start thinking about giving the government more, more ability to regulate truth and falsity. How yeah. do you think all that cashes out? Okay, well, I mean, uh, you put it the way uh, some number of press enthusiasts would put it. Right. Uh, that is, when the president suggested that libel law ought to be changed, it appeared from what he said that he believed that this was a matter of legislation rather than a matter of Supreme Court doctrine. Well, that too. Yeah. Uh, so yes. uh, the the quick jump from a remedy in a court um, for damages to the government is doing the restricting might be a little too quick. Justice Thomas, at least, uh, in this one opinion, isn't suggesting so much that there ought to be a dramatic change as this ought to be worked out in common law fashion. And although I disagree with him, one of the things that might be said in his favor is without the interjection of the First Amendment or constitutional considerations, countries like the UK and Australia and New Zealand in common law fashion have substantially changed the traditional common law of libel to make it much more press protective than it used to be, much more concerned about chilling than it used to be, all in common law fashion without going as far as the Supreme Court did in New York Times versus Sullivan. Uh, There is a hint in this one opinion from Justice Thomas that that's really what he wants. Uh, Continue to working this out in common law fashion. Now, that doesn't mean that if there were a change, there wouldn't be problems. There would inevitably be more suits brought by political officials. There would inevitably be more political campaigns in which libel suits going in both directions came to uh, become at the center of political campaigns and the like, uh, that's not such a good thing. Have those things happened in Australia and other countries? Australia commonly, New Zealand commonly, uh, UK commonly, but a little bit less now, South Africa rampantly. Uh, Libel suits have been a big part of South African political life even since 1995 and the end of apartheid. So one wonders about all of this. One wonders about what political campaigns would look like. 
that looks like it would be problematic. On the other side would be the argument, well, maybe it would make political figures a little bit more cautious about throwing around specific factual allegations about their opponents that they couldn't actually establish. Whether we would have better political campaigns with, let's put it bluntly, more truth is the question, or if not more truth, at least less straight out falsity. Thank you so much for being with us, Fred. Thank this you. Was this a was great fun. Conversation. This was great. Thank you. That was Frederick Schauer, David and Mary Harrison Professor of Law at UVA. He's the author of numerous articles and books, including Free Speech of Philosophical Inquiry, The Law of Obscenity, and Thinking Like a Lawyer. Fabulous, Leslie. These are things you think about all the time, but uh, for me, it was a real treat to hear about all the pros and cons and all the complexities of uh, libel law and its interactions with the First Amendment. It's so great to talk with Fred about this. He has written on every aspect of this, and so many of them are really important. It was really fun that we got to talk about a number of them. Um, The actual malice standard and whether that's the right remedy or not. There's just so much there. And and it was also fun to get to talk about it with you, where all of this really is coming out of the civil rights context. It's such a civil rights case. That's really what's going on. And yet it winds up having these enormous First Amendment implications, just completely changing the relationship between libel law and constitutional law. Um, and in some ways, we backed into this uh, because of this this really problematic situation that comes out of the civil rights era. I think that's true uh, for so much, both yes. a- outside of libel context, within the First Amendment context, and then in criminal laws more generally. So the place where I know it best, obviously, is in you know low-level criminal laws like vagrancy, loitering, disorderly conduct, breach of the peace, where during the same period, the court kept hearing those cases because those were the laws under which many of the civil rights protesters were arrested. You know, this is one data point among many, both within the First Amendment and beyond, where the the cases that the court was deciding in the 1960s were really so heavily influenced, determined maybe too strong, but so heavily influenced by what was going on in the civil rights movement and also especially how the states of the Deep South were using their their various kinds of state power to suppress civil rights protest and challenges to Jim Crow that made the court and made lawyers think creatively about how to attack that state power. And I think made the court very hyper aware that if they weren't to intervene, it would be very hard for anyone to intervene. That seems exactly right, that there's this this enterprising nature to the way law is being used within the Deep South. So I think about Alabama's use of their own foreign corporations law to try to force the NAACP to, to disclose its membership list, which will thereby open uh, those members to reprisals by third parties and attacks by vigilantes. There's just a lot that's and, going on. And that also comes up to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court is protective of those lists and those members and makes new laws 
law there on a right to association. Creates whole new First Amendment doctrine there, too, in order to address this problem. Um, and, and, you know, one possible story one could tell about this is the links to which the Supreme Court will go to avoid calling Alabama racist straight up, right? Avoid saying this is an abusive and animus-based uh, use of your foreign corporations law. Instead, they create an entire effects-based inquiry into these types of applications of law that, that suggest, well, sometimes these are going to chill people's right of association. And we're not, we're not saying anything bad about anybody. We're just saying sometimes the effects are going to be too unfortunate. As I was just saying, the court is one of the few actors that has power to intervene in what are often state or local battles between civil rights protesters and state and local governments that have all the cards, right? Uh, And there's no voting for African-Americans in the South at this time. They don't have political power. Um, And so the court, and this is true, I think, often of the stories we tell about Brown versus Board of Education, as well as NAACP versus uh, Alabama, in all of these cases, the court is situated as the hero. And yet there's an irony there because the reason why after the Civil War and after the Reconstruction Amendments, African-Americans are eventually stripped of their political power is because the court allows it to happen. And the court essentially abdicates its responsibility in the late 19th century and the early 20th century, allows segregation to arise, allows for disenfranchisement, allows for involuntary servitude uh, of all kinds. And then come the middle of the 20th century, lo and behold, there's no political power. It's very hard for African-Americans to contest the enormous powers of the state. Um, and happily, the, the court does jump in eventually in, in the 1950s, the 1960s, um, but it's solving a problem of its own making from almost a century before. That takes me back to our conversations with Cynthia Nicoletti and the way that law was used by uh, Southern landowners to try to reclaim their land and to take it back from uh, newly freed slaves, which just gets to law being a part of all of these stories and uh, legal decisions that are made in one century having enormous implications for the legal landscape a century later. Yeah, so how law changed the world and then changed it again and changed it again and changed it again. So, Leslie, I was struck as we were talking with Fred. It's not that we haven't had common law topics before on the show, but we were really using the phrase common law quite a lot to distinguish it from constitutional law. And that just tickled me. Yeah. Yeah. This is really common law, common law today. Exactly. Yeah. Well, that's it for this episode of Common Law. We hope you'll join us next time for more stories about when law changed the world. In the meantime, let us know what you think. Rate or review us on Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you hear the show. And check out our website, commonlawpodcast.com, to find all our past episodes, including last season's shows about the future of law, background information on this episode, and much more. You can also follow us on Twitter, at Common Law UVA. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with our next guest, Joyce White Vance. She'll be talking about criminal law reform and its impact on prosecutors. The question that I increasingly began to ask is, is what we're doing here making our community safer? Common Law comes to you from the University of Virginia School of Law. Today's episode was produced by Sidney Holliman, Robert Armengall, and Mary Wood, with help from Virginia Kane. The show is recorded at the studio of the Virginia Quarterly Review. I'm Risa Galuba. And I'm Leslie Kendrick. See you next time.